Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 32, When God and His Saints Slept. King Stephen was the last king covered by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which ends in 1154. I don't know why exactly it ends, but in some ways its various authors and contributors must have felt that something had finally changed, that the Anglo-Saxon people had irretrievably changed into something else. Maybe Henry and the Anarchy had made a difference in binding the English and the Normans into one entity since by the end of Stephen's reign, 1066 would have been beyond living memory for most. And there's also a sense that Stephen's successor Henry II was the start of a new dynasty, and he himself was a direct descendant of the line of Cherdich. And finally there was now so much marriage between Norman and English that even the chroniclers noted that it was almost impossible to tell the difference. I feel quite emotional. One of the wonderful things about studying the Dark Ages as an amateur historian is that the lack of sources means you get to know a few of those sources really very well. And actually you feel that you've got to know the character of the authors. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle had many contributors, and their style has changed from the laconic, or in places frankly lazy, to the expansive and even garrulous during the Conqueror's reign. There are many famous lines in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Think, for example, of the famous 793 entry about the arrival of the Norsemen in Northumbria and the burning of Lindisfarne but we have to wait until very close to the end to get to one of the most evocative of all the entries. The Chronicle gives us a good long blast about the evils of Stephen's reign and ends with the following passage. Wherever the land was tilled, the earth bore no corn, for the land was all ruined with such deeds, and they said openly that Christ and his saints slept. There can't be a much stronger indication of the misery of the period than the feeling that God himself was no longer interested in protecting his people, especially in an age of such faith. And as with so many events in medieval England, the misery of the period was seen as God's punishment for men's sins. 
How else could it be explained? Words of that strength make history of themselves. And historians through the ages have also made their own contribution to our impression of the age, none more so than the early 20th century historian J. Horace Round, the man who invented the phrase, the anarchy. This is one of those phrases that modern historians probably don't like very much. Because the modern view of the period is that it probably wasn't as bad for all ordinary folk as the phrase suggests. But the anarchy is such a strong, simple and evocative word that we're just not going to get rid of it. And also, the word does identify a fundamental truth of the period. Hate it or loathe it, the state that William and his sons had made in 1066, to some degree at least, comes apart during Stephen's reign, and it has to be remade by the Angevins. On the 1st of December 1135, then, a sombre group of powerful men lay assembled around a figure lying in a bed at the castle of a small town in Normandy, now called Lyon la Forêt. Earl Robert of Gloucester was an illegitimate son of the king and one of the most powerful lords in the west of England. Alongside him were the Archbishop of Rouen, the Bishop of Evreux, the Count of Perche, the Beaumont twins, Robert of Leicester and Walleran of Merlin, and William of Warren, the Earl of Surrey. Other lords had been in attendance on the king over the last few days, including a man called Hugh Bigard. Hugh was an important baron of East Anglia. The figure in the bed, of course, was Henry I, and notably absent from the king's bedside as he breathed his last were his loving daughter and son-in-law, Matilda and Geoffrey. That's because both of them were at the head of an army, pushing into southern Normandy in support of a rebellion against Henry's authority, so they weren't really on speaking terms. I think it's safe to say that Geoffrey and Matilda were currently off the king's Christmas card list. By the end of the day, Henry had breathed his last his body was sewn up inside an animal skin and sent to Reading Abbey to be buried. Henry's last instructions would be later disputed, though the balance of probabilities is that he left all his possessions to Matilda as planned. It appears he didn't mention Geoffrey at all, which would make sense, since Geoffrey was a hated Angevin. However, Hugh Bigard would later swear on oath, in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury no less, that before he died, Henry had changed his mind and that he'd left all his possessions to his highly favoured nephew, Stephen of Blois. We've talked a bit about Stephen and Henry's reign, enough to know that he's the son of Stephen of Blois, the man accused of cowardice in abandoning the First Crusade in front of Antioch. His brothers were Theobald, the Count of Blois, and Henry of Blois, both men who were going to be significant players throughout his reign. Stephen's reputation before he came to the throne was almost entirely positive, and in many ways... That reputation survived the reign. He basically comes down to us as a good bloke. He was massively powerful, but despite that was unassuming, generous and courteous. He was known to be personally and physically brave, which may have been a conscious reaction on his part to the cloud that hung over his father for that desertion at Antioch. And he had a reputation for piety and a love of peace, so even a chronicler basically as hostile to him as William of Malmesbury was forced to say that By his good nature and the way he jested, sat and ate in the company even of the humblest, earned an affection that can hardly be imagined. But perhaps the kicker comes in the phrase in the Gesta Stefani, when the author, who is basically trying to big up his man, says that he preferred to settle all things in the love of peace and concord rather than encourage schism or discord in any way. And it could just be that Stephen essentially lacked Henry's ability to control his barons through a bit of well-aimed and well-timed brutality. But I think you'll find that Stephen was no pushover. He's no Henry VI. 
OK, so back to the story. Stephen wasn't by the bedside on the 1st of December because he had other fish to fry. He hopped over the channel from his home in Boulogne and with studied nonchalance made his way to London. The early signs hadn't been great. Robert of Gloucester had kept Dover Castle firmly closed in his face. But London changed all that. Stephen was in London by the 8th of December, just a week after Henry's death. He would have been a well-known figure in London. As Count of Boulogne, many London merchants would have relied on their trade with the region. And in London, they loved him. Everyone came out to meet him, and they were pretty sure exactly why he was there, and they thoroughly approved. By this time, London was one of the largest cities in Northern Europe, with 25,000 people and far and away the most important centre of trade in England. And Stephen handled the whole occasion very well indeed. London was very keen, for example, to have its own Charter of Liberties and to become a commune, anathema to all previous kings. Stephen did enough to empathise without giving anything really away and through his charm and diplomacy entirely won the support of the city. You'll be able to contrast this with Matilda when she gets her chance six years later. You all know by now how to become a king in early medieval England. First get to London, then Winchester, get a coronation. So within another week, Stephen was in Winchester. In Winchester, Stephen would have hooked up with his brother, Henry of Blois, the Bishop of Winchester. Henry was a larger-than-life figure, a real prince of the medieval church. He'd been educated at the monastery of Cluny in Burgundy, the heart of religious reform, and whatever his political and worldly ambitions, there was always something of the Cluniac reformer in Henry's makeup. But he himself was in breach of those reforming rules. He'd been made the abbot of Glastonbury in 1126, and then Bishop of Winchester in 1129, and he'd neglected to give Glastonbury up. This meant that he was one of the richest men in England, with the combined income from the land attached to both offices. This mix of the worldly and the religious was captured by Henry of Huntingdon, who described him as a new kind of monster, composed part pure and part corrupt, I mean part monk and part knight. His eloquence was famous. The Pope said that he could corrupt two nations by his tongue. He was a great connoisseur of art, touring the antique shops of Rome for the finest pieces. He's normally presented as being cleverer and more worldly wise than Stephen, but it's also notable that his advice is not always very good. And rather cutely, the chronicler William of Malmesbury, who knew the bishop well, described him saying, Yet in spite of his noble birth, he blushes when praised. But what's for sure is that Henry is a player, and a player with more ambition than ethic. It's usual to attribute much of Stephen's success in gaining the throne to Henry, but in fact Stephen got London on his side all by himself and it's quite probable that the two major officials of the treasury Roger Bishop of Salisbury and William Pont de Lache, trusted Stephen more than they trusted his brother but either way they handed over the keys and Stephen moved on to his last challenge the coronation the man he had to convince was William of Corbet the Archbishop of Canterbury William had three questions on his mind none of which by the way were related to precedence of inheritance in any way his questions were these. Hey, surely it was clear that King Henry had wanted Matilda to be on the throne, not Stephen. Hang on, I don't like the cut of Stephen's jib. He swore an oath to support Matilda, so doesn't that make him a no-good oath-breaker? And finally, what's in it for the church? What help are you going to give the church, Stephen, and how can we be sure you'll live up to your promises? So on the first one, enter stage left Hugh Biggard 
one of the men who'd been in Normandy when Henry died. He and two other knights swore that King Henry had changed his mind on his deathbed and preferred Stephen. This is not entirely impossible, incidentally, and it was accepted by William, who is, after all, the Archbishop of Canterbury. On number two, Henry and Stephen then persuaded William that these three oath-takings were invalid because they'd been forced into it. And anyway, Stephen had had his fingers crossed behind his back. Well, he didn't actually do the fingers behind his back thing, but you know what I mean. And finally, for question number three, Henry stood surety that Stephen would stand by his commitments to restore and maintain the freedom of the church, which would be enshrined in Stephen's coronation charter. All of this was good enough for William of Corbet. He was also probably persuaded by the fact that the kingdom needed a strong leader. The other candidate appeared to be engaged in rebellion in southern Normandy and was what, a woman? Nah. Stephen was of good reputation and military prowess. He was of royal blood and had a good claim, i.e. he was Henry's nephew. And to add to that, Stephen was married to Matilda of Boulogne, who had the blood of the line of Cherdich in her veins. So the long and short was that on the 22nd of December, Stephen was crowned king at Westminster. You might well ask where Matilda was while all of this was going on. Well, she and Geoffrey seemed to have been guilty of rotten timing and very poor PR. Of course, everyone was a bit dubious about the Queen thing anyway, and the idea of an Angevin anywhere near the throne was just gobsmacking. And they both decided to make their claim by force of arms, marching into southern Normandy at the head of an army, rather than taking the London-Winchester crown route. So the northern barons got together, and they called in Theobald, the Count of Bois, and they began to talk to him about whether he'd take on the job of Duke of Normandy. Theobald, unsurprisingly, was pretty keen, but while they debated, the news reached them about Stephen. The barons hated having split rulers of Normandy and England, and so they all transferred their allegiance to Stephen. I have this image of the hall emptying as the news came through and the barons rushed across the channel to meet Stephen, and poor old Theobald was left standing there all by himself. So Theobald, shoulders slumped, went back to Bois. Blood being thicker than water in this case at least, he supported Stephen quietly but helpfully for the rest of his life. So given the chaos that follows, it's important to note that the first few years of Stephen's reign were really pretty smooth. And in fact, you might also say his accession was smoother than his predecessors. He'd secured both England and Normandy right from the start. Actually, the horse trading wasn't yet over. Stephen's accession relied on the support of the church. And although he'd made general promises, they needed something a little bit more solid. So at Oxford in 1136, Stephen issued his second Charter of Liberties. The Charter has a slightly defensive feel, Stephen feels the need to point out, at the beginning of it, that the Pope has confirmed that he's the rightful King of England. The main bit of the deal is up front. Stephen commits to the freedoms of the Church, and to helping stamp out simony, which is the purchase of offices, and also to restoring any land stolen from the Church since the Conqueror's time. It's not a bad deal, to be honest. Really, Stephen doesn't give a lot away. There was no Angevin party in sight at this point. But Stephen had to look to signing up the big names. These included families that Henry I had raised up, the Beaumonts in particular. He would have been nervous about Henry's direct family as well, who had been given considerable power, Robert of Gloucester and Reginald of Cornwall. And there were also the older big families, and there were none bigger than Ranulph of Chester. A successor of Hugh d'Avranche, Ranulph was not just powerful, controlling as he did a vast honour, but his power was unusually territorially compact, with vast swathes of the north. 
This was because he was a marcher earl, with a territory built to take the battle to the Welsh. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So by Easter 1136, things actually looked very good for Stephen. He got his secular and ecclesiastical lords together at Westminster in a brilliant assembly and crown-wearing. Everyone was there, with the exception of Robert of Gloucester. For a while, the position with Robert hadn't looked good, with constant unanswered demands from Stephen for a meeting. But in April, the whole court moved to Oxford, and there took the fealty of all the earls, including Robert of Gloucester. Things looked great now for Stephen. He'd acted with daring and elan in 1135. He had his brilliant wife Matilda and loyal captain William of Ypres at his side. The Angevins had seemingly proved a paper tiger. Everything was in place. Now we, of course, know that fate was just messing with him. But Stephen didn't know that, and Stephen underestimated the dangers. Henry's death had unleashed a massive wave of optimism that Stephen would be less of a tyrant than Henry. A bit like Margaret Thatcher's replacement with John Major, a feeling that whatever your view of the previous person, at least things were going to be a little bit more easy going from now on. Stephen was okay up to now, because all he'd done was to say yes to everything. But as soon as he had to start asserting royal rights, the brown stuff hit the fan. It's worth noting that Stephen never loses sight of his duty to assert the rights of his office. The accusation against him is that he lacked Henry's brutality to overcome his baron's ambitions, but it's also true that Henry's situation was somewhat different. Stephen did have a couple of immediate problems. The first was David, King of Scots. Stephen and David met up at Durham in 1136, and David refused to forswear the oath that he'd taken to Matilda. But all was not lost, and the chroniclers recorded that Stephen got what he wanted. The deal was that Stephen gave David Carlisle and Doncaster, David's son Henry did then do homage to Stephen, though for his English fiefs only, and Henry attached himself to Stephen's court, an unofficial hostage probably. It was an expensive, but probably reasonable deal, though of course no one wants to lose Dommy. The second immediate problem was Normandy, where things were a good deal more chaotic. Geoffrey had invaded immediately in 1136, but had to withdraw because his own barons in Anjou were giving him grief. Geoffrey found it difficult to make much headway. The normal supremacy of the castle ruled and the Norman barons at this point had their faces set against him. Geoffrey tried again later in 1136, did a bit of wasting, then withdrew. When Stephen appeared in September, he was able to secure the loyalty of the duchy pretty easily. 
he also gained complete recognition from Louis VI, King of France. Louis might not like a combined English and Norman kingdom, but sure as eggs is eggs, he didn't want to face an empire that included Anjou as well. By the end of 1137, Stephen had concluded a two-year truce with Geoffrey, and things looked great. It didn't, however, take long for the cracks to appear. What happens is that Stephen disabuses the Baron of the notion that the tyranny of William and his sons is over, and that he'll be a pushover. He crushes some early rebellions, notably by Baldwin de Redvers in Exeter and the Isle of Wight. He also had to deal with Hugh Bigard, who seized Norwich, presumably thinking that he was owed some reward. Stephen expelled Hugh, but made it up with him for the time being. Meanwhile, David of Scots was back raiding in the north, putting pressure on Stephen to concede Northumbria to him as well. Once again, Stephen proved energetic, invading Scotland and forcing David to retreat. You get the feeling of a dam holding back a pressure of water, with Stephen desperately plugging the holes one by one. And then as soon as one is plugged, another leak springs up somewhere else. And then the whole edifice collapses and falls on him. Robert of Gloucester had been slow and reluctant to swear his allegiance to Stephen, since he genuinely felt uncomfortable going against his father's wishes and not supporting his half-sister. Although he had no hatred of Stephen, he also found it difficult to see him as his king. After all, for many years there had been contemporaries and peers, and indeed rivals. And then in 1137, Robert was irritated by the influence of William of Ypres and his Flemish mercenaries with Stephen, and he felt divorced from the centre of power. His rivalry with William of Ypres led to brawls between their followers, and William even tried to ambush Robert. So when Geoffrey invaded Normandy in 1138, Robert declared for Matilda and raised the standard of revolt in England. So Stephen was faced with war on three fronts, England in the south, England in the north and Normandy. He entrusted the defence of Normandy to the Beaumont family in the form of Walleron of Merlon and to William of Ypres. His wife Matilda was sent against Dover, Stephen marched to face Robert in the southwest, and the north was left to the northern barons to defend. In his end-of-year report for 1138, Stephen was to get two out of three, and Meatloaf might have commented that two out of three ain't bad. In Normandy, Geoffrey made no headway and was forced to retire in November, and would effectively not return until 1141. Stephen sent a group of knights north with Bernard de Balliol to help local resistance against the Scottish invasion. Bernard and another Anglo-Norman lord, one Robert Bruce, were sent to negotiate with David, because although they held lands in England, they also held Scottish lands and owed homage to David. They offered him Northumbria, but this was no longer enough. David was now officially fighting for Matilda, and saw the chance for richer pickings. Robert Bruce, and yes, this is the same family as the famous Robert Bruce and Bannockburn, and Bernard de Balliol therefore renounced their fealty to David. They joined with the local resistance organised by Thurston the Archbishop of York, William O'Mal, a host of local lords and the High Sheriff. The Scottish army of 26,000 moved south, winning an encounter called the Battle of Clitheroe, before meeting the English army on Calton Moor near Northallerton in Yorkshire. The ensuing Battle of the Standard is so named because the English formed their defensive position on a small hill, where they used a cart and a mast to set up a standard as a rallying point for their army. The English front line was the same mix of archers and dismounted knights as we have seen before, and we know that the archers were the longbowmen that were to be such a potent force for the English from here on in. The main body was held defensively on the hill, and a cavalry reserve was held back. 
Archbishop Thurston's representative Rudolf, ironically the Bishop of Orkneys, prepared the English with a traditional rousing speech, including a nice example of the kind of slagging that the Scots and the English have thrown at each other ever since. The Scots, declared Rudolf, are more fitted for rioting than for battle. David's Galwegians begged for the honour of leading the charge, and so charged recklessly on foot at the English line. They were cut to pieces by the English archers. As the chieftains of the Lothian contingents were killed by arrows, panic spread through the Scottish ranks, and the English attacked. David emulated English tactics and ordered his knights to dismount to meet the attack, while Prince Henry tried a flanking cavalry movement. But none of it helped stem the tide, and the English army retreated in chaos, losing apparently over 10,000 men to the English handful. In the aftermath of the battle, Stephen has been criticised for his rather generous settlement at the Treaty of Durham in 1139 the following year. David was confirmed in his ownership of Carlisle. Prince Henry was given the earldom of Northumbria. But it's not as daft as it sounds. Prince Henry would hold his lands of the English crown, and it therefore rather confirmed English ownership of Northumbria that David had been disputing. Stephen absolutely needed to keep the border quiet while he dealt with the revolt elsewhere. But the problem is that it antagonised a very powerful baron, Ranulf of Chester, who claimed Carlisle for himself. And in this it was to have serious consequences, but for the moment at least, the northern border was pacified. So that's the two out of three. The situation in the south was, however, far more complicated. One of the features of the decade and more of civil war that's going to follow is that the opposing sides remain remarkably stable for the most part. So Robert Stifidacio flushed out three other lords who were to be constantly at the forefront of the Empress's faction. Miles of Gloucester and Brian Fitzcount were long associates of Robert, and it seems highly likely their revolt was planned and timed with him. Brian crucially held the honour of Wallingford, which was for many years the easternmost outpost of the Empress's territory. In addition, Brian was a childhood friend of Matilda, and there was a strong smell of a far closer relationship and even of romance between them. Miles of Gloucester held land on the Welsh marches, so together with Robert's land they could count on a powerful base in the southwest. However, Robert's holdings in the southeast were quickly taken out of the reckoning, as Matilda of Boulogne quickly reduced the castle. Incidentally, let's have a convention here. We'll call Matilda, daughter of Henry, the Empress and Matilda, wife of Stephen, shall be named Matilda from now on. The Empress at the time was still in Normandy, as was Robert of Gloucester. Both of them would have done better to time their arrival in England with David of Scots' invasion. Stephen, meanwhile, made two moves that had been endlessly debated. The first was a decision not to make his brother Henry of Blois the Archbishop of Canterbury on the death of William of Corbeil. Stephen had obviously decided that it wasn't going to look good to increase his brother's power still further. So he gave the job to a man called Theobald of Beck. Now as it happens, Henry was simultaneously made papal legate by the Pope and therefore in principle was actually superior in power to the Archbishop of Canterbury. But Henry, who probably saw himself as the kingmaker, was seriously hacked off with Stephen. And then in 1139, some of Stephen's supporters, possibly Walleron of Beaumont, brought him the evidence of an Angevin plot against him. The three men he accused were three bishops, Roger of Salisbury, Alexander of Lincoln and Nigel of Ely. Together these three bishops had basically run Henry I's kingdom, and they possessed immense riches and castles. Their defection to the Empress would be absolutely ruinous to Stephen's cause. 
but then moving against the bishops was fraught with danger, as we've already seen in Rufus's reign. But Stephen had been convinced, and he called a council in Oxford. Unsuspecting, the bishops came to attend with their retinues. Before the start of the council, an argument broke out between their supporters and those of one of Stephen's closest advisers, Alan of Pontiev. The chronicler doesn't say so, but you've got to assume this was a stitch-up job and was a manufactured argument, because this allowed Stephen to accuse the bishops of disturbing the peace of his court and demand that they hand over their castles. They refused, so Stephen arrested them. Nigel caught wind and fled, but Stephen caught up with him at Devizes and threatened to hang Roger of Salisbury in front of the castle unless Nigel submitted, which he duly did. All three of them were forced to relinquish their castles to the king and were then released to resume their ecclesiastical posts. Now Henry of Blois, newly made legate, was worried. He was no longer so sure of his position with his brother and had himself built six castles without permission and had no desire to be next. So he called a legatine council in August and accused the king of violating clerical immunity. But in fact, the English and Norman church both recognised Stephen's action as reasonable. This is because the action Stephen had taken had concerned making the bishops give up their lands and had returned them to their ecclesiastical offices. And they recognised that Stephen was well within his rights to defend the king's peace. So the council broke up without taking any action against Stephen. Some historians argue that Stephen seriously messed up here, that the church on whom Stephen relied for support was alienated. Others argued that Stephen showed his incapability of handling the different court factions, and still others argue that, yeah, Stephen had done the right thing and scotched a potential threat. Actually, I think I incline to the last few. It's possible that Stephen was jumping at shadows, and that there was no plot, but we simply don't have the evidence one way or t'other. Stephen had already lost his brother's support and the indications are that basically the church establishment accepted Stephen's right to act as he did. Stephen's actions seem pretty decisive in fact. The only issue I think is do we see a trend in this? Stephen would try the tactic again in less favourable circumstances and where the outcome was considerably more dubious. The other key point is that Stephen was consciously establishing a partnership with the Beaumont family. They were powerful landowners in both England and Normandy. Their protégé now becomes the Justiciar to replace Roger of Salisbury. The whole event essentially establishes a powerful support for Stephen that lasts all the way through to 1153. There's one more major event in 1139 we need to cover before closing round one of the anarchy. The revolt spread. Reginald, Earl of Cornwall, raised the standard of revolt. Nigel of Ely did likewise in East Anglia but it's worth noting that a series of local encounters by and large went Stephen's way in the southwest. Then in September, Angevin supporters started arriving from the continent. Baldwin of Redvers took refuge in Corfe Castle in September, and the Empress and Robert landed Arundel on the southeast coast of England in October, invited there by Adelaide, Henry I's second wife. Stephen, as you might expect, legged it straight down to Arundel. By this time, Robert of Gloucester had slipped out and managed to avoid Stephen and make it to his stronghold at Bristol. Why on earth he didn't take the Empress with him is a complete mystery. Stephen, meanwhile, at least had the Empress trapped in Arundel. The Empress asked for safe conduct and an escort for her supporters to Bristol. And Stephen said, yeah, sure, and watched her ride away. The utter daftness of this decision is a matter for continual debate. 
Stephen was apparently initially planning to laugh, reduce the castle and imprison the Empress. He reputedly changed his mind from this thoroughly sensible course of action on the advice of Henry of Blois. Later it comes out that at this stage Henry had already been writing to the Empress and encouraging her to come over. There seems to have been serious question marks therefore over Henry's motivation and loyalties even at this early stage. There's another thought that Stephen was motivated by courtesy, chivalry and a sense of honour, which could be true. And arguments have been made that the whole affair wasn't that significant. It was Robert that mattered militarily, not the Empress. But no, daft, daft, daft. The Empress, once at liberty, could rally support. In captivity, she'd be just a major bargaining trip for Stephen at the very least. The only argument in favour of Stephen not being a dipstick in this one, for me, is the complete inexplicability of it all, i.e. maybe there's something we just don't know that we're missing. But unfortunately, in the absence of that, I'm going to have to give him this week's dipstick sticker. So at the end of 1139, the battle lines are drawn. The Angevins have a compact power base in the southwest, centred on Bristol. Other revolts are in progress in East Anglia, Kent and Dorset. By the way, we're back in the territory of continual reference to towns and locations in England, so do go to the website where maps are provided. And then next week, we'll see how all this unfolds. In the meantime, everyone, good luck and have a great week.